Praise the Lord. Good morning, church. Now, I want to tell you, this is an altar. I want to tell you, I think I've never ministered at a church where there's chocolates next to anointing oil right now. This is a church I could belong to right there. And folks, I, I want to just say to you, how serious must you be about anointing? Look at the size of this, <laughs> this bottle. I, I want to tell you, I sat here and I was reminded um, I have a strange sense of humor. It's an early document in the church called the Didache. It's called the Teachings of the Twelve Apostles. It was written right at the beginning of the second century. It's a magnificent document that speaks about how to prophesy and how to pray for healing. But it speaks about baptism. And I remember the first time I was reading it in a Greek class. And you know when you get the giggles and you're not supposed to laugh? And I sat there and I giggled throughout the whole class until I was thrown out. And the reason why I was laughing in this very early church document, it speaks about baptism. And, And it says, before you baptize somebody, make sure that they are following Jesus. It's good. Good advice, right? They said, and and then they go a little far and they say, they must fast for three days and three nights before you baptize them. Then you must cast out every demon. (laughs) I love it. And then it says, and then you must anoint them with oil all over their body. And then baptize them. Right? So this is what I was thinking about. Is enough oil here for a baptism? But the reason why I was laughing, I was imagining, would this not make baptism slippery? Right? (laughs) Maybe you would baptize them if they can't swim. That's it, right? Slip right out of your hands and they would die. Nonetheless, that's that's what I was thinking about during worship, right? (laughs) I was reminded of this. It is such a privilege to be here. And, and indeed, there is a deep sense this morning of God's providence and God's place within it. I heard some heresy that this is the promised land earlier today. But there's a little truth in that, in that heresy. And of course, the truth is that God is in your midst. And that God has a plan for this extraordinary country. Um, How many of you are sensing the spark of revival is starting to be ignited in this country, right? You can sense it. So this morning, for a few moments, I want to speak about the enemy of revival and how do we combat it. The greatest enemy to revival, the greatest enemy to a renewal movement, the greatest enemy to a reawakening is distraction. Now we live in a distracted world. Our hearts are fragmented in a million different directions. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult just to pay attention. Here's the problem. I watch my son, he is, he's grown up in the internet age. You know, he's a digital native. I'm a pilgrim. I'm just a tourist in the digital world. He lives there. And I watch him. He sits in his loft and um, he's got the television going. He's got his computer going. He's got his iPad going. He's got his cell phone going. And he's playing a game on another monitor all at the same time. And I watch this and I say, there's too much going on. He has never lived during a time where the internet has not been available. 
And where we live, there's extraordinary fast internet. And so um, the other day they were working in our yard and our internet was not down. It was just a little slow. There was a little lag time. And he marched into my study and he said, must we live like animals? <laughs> right? Must we live like animals with no fast internet, right? But this is the problem that we face. Our hearts and directions are in a million different, different directions. And, 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 and the answer to all of this is to have a united heart. Psalms 116 says the following. It says, the Lord saves the simple. I'm going to stop there for a moment. That word simple is a mistranslation in essence out of the Hebrew. And today when, when we want to really, <clears throat> you know, I am conversant in many forms of um, dissing people, right? <laughs> I am conversant in ways to insult folks. I can insult you in Afrikaans and I can insult you in English and I can insult you really well in Italian. It would sound fantastic, but you would not know uh, indeed what's going on. And sometimes we use this word simple, right, as a derogative term. So when we look at somebody, don't be simple. Except in the scriptures, the word simple means something quite different. It means to have a united, focused heart on the Lord. The Lord saves, literally the Hebrew says, those who have one heart, one heart, one desire. The Apostle James opens up his letter and speaks about the danger of having a fragmented heart. And this is what he says. He says, those that are double-minded, again, not a great translation, double-hearted is really the right term here. Those who have two hearts, he says, are unstable in all in their ways. And what do they get from God? James says, they get nothing. Church, there's a reason why God reaches out to the church in a time of desperation. There's something about a tragedy that unites our hearts and gets us on our knees. And, and we get to the place that we ask God just for one thing. Psalms 86 says the same thing. It says, unite my heart, bring my heart together into one thing so that I may fear your name. The fear of the Lord has been a life theme for me uh, for as long as I've been alive, I believe. In actual fact, um, Andre was telling me about something somebody said about that when I come, I'm going to convict them of sin. And I was reminded of this, <laughs> this one experience. I was still teaching in South Africa in Johannesburg. And I was walking behind students and they didn't see me. And there was this wonderful, lovely girl from the Cape Flats. And, and, you know, some people have a gift for turning a phrase. And she said to them, oh, Pastor Back is coming. You better be ready to sail on your stomachs like snakes today. You're going to repent at the end of this. And, and I said, oh, Jesus, help us in this. But there's something about the uniting of our hearts. To get to the place where our hearts are no longer fragmented in million different directions. Folks, we live in a noisy world. There's too much going on. Too much that draws our attention away. 
We find it difficult even to be quiet before the Lord. You know, and the scripture says, how do you know that God is God? It says, be still. Be still and know that I am God. Do you know that we find it difficult even in our churches to be quiet and to be still? What happens? Our mind starts to wander. And so we keep our services busy with so much activity and so much sound and noise. But there's something powerful that happens when the Holy Spirit comes and unites our hearts. This morning for a few moments, I'm going to speak to you about how our hearts can be united. How we can get to this place of having a simple heart, one heart, one mind, one desire. You know, David said the same thing in Psalms 27. He says, one thing I've desired of the Lord. This one thing I will seek. I'm going to tell you, I can make a list of things I want, and it's not just one. There's a lot. How do we get to that place? If you brought your Bibles today, I want you to turn to Psalms 116. And I'm going to start at verse 6. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you read from another version, the Lord helps you. I'm teasing. I'm really just teasing. Uh, Psalms 116 and verse 6, and it says, The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. That phrase, the Lord preserves the simple, could be translated in the following. It could literally say that the Lord prolongs the life of those who have one heart. And one of the reasons why movements and, and awakenings and revivals run out of steam is because we get distracted by shiny things. I cannot remember if I told you the story before. Sure, I, I have, but I'm going to tell it again. About three years ago, <clears throat> I uh, was just made dean of the School of Divinity, and I was really fresh in the game. And it was somewhat of a difficult transition. It's not really a transition that I asked for. Um, and if I knew better, I probably would have said no. But the Lord got a hold of me. And I was there probably about two months, and it was pretty tough. And the one morning, I got a phone call from a man that I've never met before. And he phoned me, and I didn't know how he got through my assistant, but he got to me. And he said to the sister following to me, he says, my name is Alan. Reinhard Bonker wants to see you next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Be in Orlando at his office. Goodbye. That's it. That's the phone call. Now, if any of you know who Reinhard Bonker is, do you know? Right. So Reinhard, just, just, just so that you know, is the person historically that has shared the gospel with more people in person than any other person alive or dead. It's extraordinary. And I knew enough, I had enough wisdom to know that if Reinhard Bonnke calls you and says, he wants to meet with you, you go. So I purchased my air ticket and I got up very early in the morning and I flew to Orlando and I got an Uber to his office and it was a very bizarre meeting. And I remember I got there and, and it was in the executive, I guess, um, uh, meeting room, conference room and him and his board came in. Now, again, I've not met 
any of these people. Actually, I did meet Reinhardt probably four times before. Of course, he couldn't remember it. Good for my humility. But nonetheless, <clears throat> I come in there and they sit down and he says, let's pray. And Reinhardt sat there and he started to shake and he started to cry. And one by one, everybody started to cry. And to be very honest with you, I'm clueless. I don't know what's going on. And I am not naturally a crier, right? It takes a lot. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about all kinds of things to make me cry, right? Because everybody's crying. I don't know why they're crying and I'm trying to cry. No tears will come. So I'm sitting there feeling like an absolute pagan in the midst of saints. This goes on for about 20 minutes. Now, folks, 20 minutes in that awkward situation feels like an eternity. And I'm sitting there, and, and Reinhardt is shaking there, and he's crying. And finally, he composed himself. Never prayed, by the way. He just cried. And then he looked up to me, and this is what he said. He said, in the years of ministry, I've learned just one lesson. He says, you don't need the big bands. You don't need the famous people. You don't need the balloons and streamers and coffee and cake. He says, ultimately, the only thing you need in order for ministry to happen is the Holy Spirit. And this is what he said then. He said, the reason why I'm crying, he says, is that I am concerned about the next generation. Will they know that the Holy Spirit is enough? Wow. Then I cried. <laughs> now I'm crying. And then he turned to me and he says, and you have been tasked to lead this school to teach your students this. Goodbye. And he got up and he walked away. The meeting was 30 minutes. That's it. I cried all the way back to Virginia Beach. <laughs> and I cried for the next three or four or five days. It took me quite a while to recover just from that moment. And what he was speaking about is the fact that our hearts must be absolutely and totally focused on one God. God saves the simple. And church, let me stop for a moment and say to you, I know South Africa is going through one of its darkest times ever. But here, I want to say to you, and I'm careful as I say this. Sometimes people fly in and just say all kinds of things and then they fly back. I'm trying not to do that. But I have such a deep sense that the darkest time is right before the break of dawn. And church, you are right at the turning corner right now. Right at the turning corner. The turn is not far. Do not give up hope on this country. Believe in the promises that God has given to you. And here it is. Be simple of heart means focused of heart in that one desire to see the Lord move in your midst. Do not be distracted by the fluff and the bubble. Do not be distracted, distracted by all the streamers and the balloons and the shiny things that are going around. Remain focused on the Lord asking Him to move in our midst. Our university had a miraculous start. This is our 40th year of being. And it is a university of miracles. 
If I have to tell you all the things that have happened, if you ever come to Walnut, if when you come to visit us, because I've asked the Lord to send you all, right? I'm always in recruitment mode. (laughs) I am trusting the Lord. I don't see students. I see potential churches. I see nations that are being changed. But if you walk on our ground, you can sense the very presence of the Lord. And for the last number of years, I've had an opportunity to meet with our chancellor on a weekly, weekly basis, the founder of our university. And this is a man of extraordinary vision. He is one of the hardest workers I've ever met. He is 89 at the moment, 89 years old. Two years ago, he fell off his horse. Yes, the guy rides horses at this age. In actual fact, if you were there very early in the morning, as I often am, you would see him on the horse. And um, the horse, well, <clears throat> kind of threw him off. And, you know, when you're 87 and you break nine ribs and your elbow and your wrist and burst your spleen, it's kind of an end game scenario. And the doctor said to him, Six months before you can go back to work. Yes, the guy works. That was Thursday. Monday morning, he was back at the office and continued on. He just finished his 20th book. He's 89. He's going to be 90 in about nine months from now. And when I speak to him, I ask him this question. And when you look at the buildings and you look at the amount of students that have come and and the change that is happening right now in our country, I asked him this question. I said, what started all of this? And he always just say one thing. He says to me, we started off with seven professors and 77 students in a trailer, no office. He said, the Lord said, build me a school for your glory. And he said to the Lord, I have $12. And the Lord says, that's enough. All you need is to trust me. And he said, every day we came before the Lord and we cried out to him and we said, use us for your glory. Use us for your glory. Now it's 40 years later. We have about 11,000 students. We have a beautiful campus. Um, We have extraordinary alumni. And um, at the moment, our debate teams just beat Yale and Harvard, which we're very grateful for. And um, things are going extraordinarily well. And now it's easy to walk around on campus. My school has got a beautiful building and a beautiful church, a chapel next to my building, which belongs to our school. And this chapel has been built. It's a replicate of a very famous chapel in London called St. Martin's in the field. So that's the kind of way that they built. And you look at all of this and you can be distracted by the stained glass windows and the beautiful pews and the marble and the amount of money that is available. And that's the danger. We have a prayer garden and I have instituted now a time of prayer for our school. We start every morning with prayer. All the staff and faculty come together and we stand in that prayer garden and we raise our hands and we cry out to God with a singular voice. And there's only one thing we ask, use us for your glory. 
That is the desire. That's what we're after. So this morning, for a few moments, I want to speak to you about how do we simplify our hearts? How do we unite our hearts? How do we get to that place? I want you to go forward in Psalms 116, and we're going to start at verse 12. Would you mind if I take my jersey off? Would that be all right? Yes. I see lots of people here in front with church pants. Um, we have two students. Hold on just for a moment. Thank you. So I married to an Italian lady. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. <clears throat> but when it comes to fashion... Uh, we sometimes disagree, and ever so often she would say to me, so a South African is going to tell an Italian how you should dress? And um, <clears throat> she would want to know what I wore today, and I'm going to be in trouble as it is. So if you have a moment of prayer, pray for the mercy of the Lord on me. Psalms 116 goes on. And in verse 12, now, the psalmist has already said, Who does God preserve? Who does God use? Those who have simple hearts. Those who who have one heart before God. Who desires just one thing. But then it goes on and in verse 12 it asks probably one of the most important questions. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And church that's really the essence of the question we need to ask this morning. What do I give back to God? How do I respond to the Lord? I know that anybody that's here that is alive and has got a heartbeat sense the presence of God in our midst earlier this morning. We have to be almost to be dead if you cannot sense that He is here and He wants to do something. But the question that we are asking is how do we respond to the Lord? And then the psalmist answers and he says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. But verse 14 is where I really want to land this morning. He says, the appropriate way to respond to God, he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. Church, how do we respond to the Lord How do we get to the place where our hearts are united? We respond by making promises to God. Now I'm going to stop you for a moment. This word vow is not a word that we typically enjoy in our churches, right? Even the idea of a promise is something that we struggle with. A vow is a promise we make to God that becomes a regulator of all of our energy. It becomes a directional force that helps us to understand where to go, what to do, how to act, and what to say. What's the power of a vow? The power of a vow is that we mirror God. We live in a world where words are cheap. When people say, I love you, (laughs) it typically means I want something from you. Words are cheap in our world. But church, I want to say to you, the words of God are not cheap. When God says one thing, it remains forever. He is unable to change. 
He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if the Lord gives you a promise, church, let me just stop you for a moment. That promise could never, ever change. It remains eternal. It speaks about the faithfulness of God. Unfortunately, today, when people make promises, they rarely keep them. I try to avoid some things in ministry. There are some things that I don't think I'm particularly gifted in. I try to avoid doing wedding ceremonies. Although I do about 10 a year, I really try not to do them for a number of reasons. Firstly, I have high expectations. So if somebody wants me to perform their wedding ceremony, I will do their premarital counseling. And I do a minimum of six months before I would consider bringing you to the place of saying yes. And the reason for this is it's very often people just step into places where they make vows, but they don't keep them. So I spend a lot of time talking to people about this. Another reason why I don't do wedding ceremonies is that I get too emotional. So when the bride comes down, I'm the first one to cry and I'm useless for the rest of the service. And the reason why I'm crying, of course, is not because she's beautiful. I'm crying because they're clueless. They don't know what's coming. They have no idea what's ahead. So when they say, I do, I want to say, you don't. Let me help you here understand what's truly going on. When we make a vow to the Lord, we are mirroring our God. We are imitating our God. John Wesley used to say the following. He says, give me a hundred men that fear nothing but God. And I will change this world. If we can get to the place where we have people, Jesus said the following, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Make no additional promises. A vow is when we stand before God and we imitate him when we say, all right, Lord, you, you have done so much for me. This is my response. Church, so often, We say things in worship that we don't mean. I remember the first time I took a good friend of mine, a Catholic nun, to church. I was so nervous. You know when you take somebody that's from a different Christian tradition to church, you always pray, oh God, let it be a calm service. Right? (laughs) And at that moment in time I thought, I'm going to take it to the 8 o'clock service because nobody's awake at that time. And it cannot be too wild. Well, of course, you know what happened. It was the wildest service in the history of the church. Our worship leader sat on her piano chair and in the second song fell over, you know, shoes going everywhere. Every demon in Gauteng manifested during that service. Pastor was running on the seats going crazy. And of course, I'm at the back with the nun. I'm just bowing my head. I went to my happy place. I didn't look to her, you know. She said, oh, Jesus, help us at the end. And I remember at the end of the service, I said to her, Madge, what did you think? And surprisingly, she said, I loved it. 
She said, I love every part of it except one thing. I thought, oh, here it is. And that's what Madge said. She said, you made a lot of promises to God today. Are you sure you will keep them? We sing, with every breath I take, I worship you. By the grace of God, God doesn't speak back. and say, listen, youngster, <laughs> I watched you the whole week. Very few breaths gave me praise and glory. But it is appropriate that we respond to God by making vows. Now, the question is, what kind of vows? And this psalm goes on and it gives us four vows that we can make to God. And this morning, I'm going to propose these four vows, a vows that unite our heart and become something that ignites not only revival, but a reawakening of God's church in the nation. Let me read it to you and then I'll unpack it just a little bit. Verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Verse 16. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You've loosed my bonds. Verse 17. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Verse 18. It says again, and I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So church, I want to say to you that there are Four vows, the psalm says, that we should make before God. The first one is probably the most difficult one. It starts by saying, precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. What's that first vow? The vow is to end well. You heard me say this over the weekend. Church, it's not how we start that's important. It's how we finish. I love the exuberance of youth. My son is 18, if you just heard, and recently, about a year ago, God got a hold of this kid like you cannot believe. And he's in church. When the church doors are open, he's there and he's praying. The moment that the Lord got a hold of him that same week, my wife phoned me and she said to me, you ordered a lot of books from Amazon. And I said, I don't think so. She says, well, I checked also our credit card. It's about $300 worth of books. Church, that's a lot of money right there. So I came home and I saw all these books. And, and I said, I didn't order this. And then, of course, my son came in and it was him. And what he did, he said he got our syllabi at our university of the books we used to teach Greek and Hebrew. And he bought them all. <laughs> Seventeen. And I said to him, Jonathan, did you order these books? He says, yes. He says, don't you want me to study God's word? Isn't that the desire? And, and of course, at that point in time, you cannot really say anything. So all that I said to him, it's okay. Let's just talk about money the next time. He says, I didn't really think about money. I said, I know, I know. You're 17. I think young men are not fully matured until they're 25. Not everything kicks in. They're not fully cooked until they're 25, Right. And um, I watched this. And it's been one year that he's been serving Christ with full abandon. And about a week ago, for the first time, he gave his testimony. 
And while he gave his testimony, I found it so funny, I had to leave just for a moment. I just had to go outside and laugh a little bit and then come back. And this is how he starts off. He says, for years and years and years, I've been running from God. And I'm thinking, you 18. (laughs) Where have you been? But isn't that the way that we think, right? We think that if we've served God five or 10 or 15 years, we are giants in the faith. Church, this year I'll celebrate 37 years of following Christ. And I feel I've just begun. I've just taken my first two steps. And I love what the psalmist says. He says, how I'm, what vow am I going to make to God? He says, I am going to die a death that is precious in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean for us? To make a vow to say, I will end well. For the last 16 years, I've had a spiritual director. It's an age-old practice where you get somebody to speak into your life that you confess your sin to. And the Lord gave me an extraordinary man, a man by the name of Sergius Wrolewski, Polish-American from Chicago, and he's tough as nails. Now, Sergius just resigned as my spiritual director. I'm very upset about it. And the reason for that is, Sergius is 103 this year. There's no signs of slowing down. Sergius is pastoring a church. He teaches a college course, and he has a radio program every Tuesday night. That's a Sergius. But I remember right at the beginning of our walking together, I was still very chatty. You know how children can be, have the gift for talking. And sometimes when we're young spiritually, we just talk. We just talk. And I remember I came to him. It was about the second week that we were working together. And you need to know, Sergius is a monk, spirit-filled. But I chose him because he was tough. And I sit there and I'm chatting and I'm chatting and I'm telling Sergius how wonderful I am. How great I am. How much I'm serving God and how things are fantastic. And he sat there and he kind of looked at me for like 45 minutes. And then he just reached out to my hand and grabbed it and he says, take a walk with me. And he took me to the cemetery next to where he was living. And there was an open grave and he, and he stood me over the grave and he said, all right, look at this grave. Imagine the day of your death. I'll come back for you. I stood there for two hours. He left for two hours. And then he came back and he took my hand again and he said to me, So, when you want to know about what's the right thing to do, think on the day of your death and you will be okay. And he left. It took me a while. I was very angry about it. Until I realized there's great wisdom. Moses writes in his beautiful psalm in Psalms 90, he says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's exactly what Sergius did. You see, church, we live in a world that pretends that none of us will die. Now, I don't want to give you really bad news today, but may I just say to you, if Jesus tarries, every one of us, none of us get out of here alive. You get it, right? 
And isn't it interesting? We prepare the church to do everything but to die well. We don't. Jesus said a very similar thing. He says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. What does it mean to take up your cross? When somebody took up their cross in the first century church, they knew what was waiting for them. You knew you were going to die. Well, church, when you're ready to make that vow, and you say, till, till the day that I die. I do an exercise with my students. I make them think about the date that they think they'll die. I want them to write it down. That's tough, I know. And then I say, how many years do you think you have left? What are you going to do with those years? Church life is very short. When I turned 50, my son wrote literally in my birthday card, you are more than halfway through. Happy birthday. Thank you. When I said to him, it's not true, that's what he said to me, let's do the math. But there's a moment of sobering that happens. Church, the most important thing that you will ever do on this earth is to die. And how you die is the key. It will be the most important act of faith. Because you will step into eternity in faith with no fear. And saying, I have finished what you've called me to do. And when you make a vow to say that my death will be precious in the eyes of the Lord. What are you saying? You're saying, I will not waste a single second or moment of my life. You are not distracted anymore. You know, people that have experienced the death close to them, there's something sobering about those people. They know how precious life is. They don't take a second for granted. And this is indeed what he says. So that's the first vow. Let me quickly take you through the next three. In verse 16, he goes on and then he says, Oh Lord, I'm your servant. And and he says it twice. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You've loosed my bonds. The second vow that we make unto God is to be a servant. Now church, let me quickly say to you, there is a difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. The psalmist is not saying, I will serve. He says, I will, I am your servant. Now, <clears throat> when I prepared for ministry, I did a lot of odd jobs. Um, I did a lot of jobs. I was terrible at most of them. Um, and the worst job that I had, I was a waiter for a while. I was the worst waiter in the history of humanity, I think. And the problem was that I didn't, I was not attentive It's not attentive to the people that I waited. Because I would just stand there and think about other things. And people would wave at me and I would, hello, wave back. And I would just stand there for a while until a manager came up to me and said, okay, there's a reason why these people are waving at you. You're supposed to serve them. Oh, okay, let's go. And then, of course, I would take their order and forget to give it to the kitchen. Because between there... Then at the table and the kitchen, I was thinking about something in theology and I was lost there for a moment. 
I was fired from that job. And appropriately so. By the way, everybody should be fired once. It's a good experience. I was fired about 12 times. So not a bad thing. Sometimes we treat God this way. The word servant in the Hebrew looks a little bit different than what it does in Greek. The Greek word really is slave and it has extra connotations. But the idea to serve in Hebrew is actually close to the idea of waitering. And what does it mean? You stand before God and you look at him. Your eyes upon him. A good waiter looks at the table. Is aware of what's going on. And the slightest body language will tell that waiter to come. If you're trying uh, to fiddle with uh, the salt um, 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 container and, and notice there's no salt in it, a good waiter will see that and run immediately and help you. When we become servants of God, what do we do? We stand before him and we say, here I am. Whatever you need me to do, I will do. So my son has been pursuing God for a full year. And there are two things that he's really struggled with. And recently, and, and he'll be okay with me telling the story, I hope. He broke up with his girlfriend. Lovely girl, godly girl. But she was not pursuing ministry the way that he was and it broke his heart and just after it happened that night at three o'clock he came and kind of shook me which he will do often and he woke me up and he says oh papi tell me there will be another one yes Jonathan there will be another one don't worry and then he says to me and this is how he cries out in the middle of the night he says I can't sleep because all I think about am I just a slave of God and of course the answer is yes Jonathan go to bed you are <laughs> he says there's no empathy and he says you're right go to bed um, this is the point so many of us find our identity and positions and titles thinking that we are more important than what we are who am I what makes me who I am? It's not the latest behind my name. It's not any man-made pagan titles that's been given to me. The only identity that I have is that I am his servant. And when you're a true servant, your eyes are upon him and your heart is connected that the only thing, the only thing that, that indeed you want to do is be obedient to him. So I recently hired a new assistant. It's an extraordinary young man. He just finished his Masters of Divinity, so he's ripe. And I hired him. I've had my eye on him for about four years. And uh, things have been going really well, except two days ago, he made a monumental mistake. My boss asked for a meeting, and he wrote back and he said, Dr. Becker is too busy to meet with you. Oh yeah, yes. So my boss sent me that message. So I had a phone call on Friday night after the service with my assistant. And it was a wonderful teaching opportunity. And I said, I know, because he handles my schedule. I says, I know I'm busy, but let me help you here. When my boss says he wants to meet with me, my schedule clears. 
And I said, the way to think of this, if Jesus asks you to do something, right? And this is the question. But that's in essence the same attitude that we need to have. The hardest thing for my son this year is to accept. That's what he said to, said to my wife. He said to her, I have no choice anymore. I don't belong to myself. I don't have a choice where I want to go and what I'm going to do. I'm his. He can do with me whatever he wants. That's the second vow. The third vow, he goes on and it's extraordinary. And in verse 17, he says, And I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I live in America where people are gifted in moaning and complaining. My students are extraordinarily feisty. And on Tuesday, I have a doctoral student that finished the first chapter of his dissertation. And he sent it to me on Monday evening, 11 a.m. Excuse me, 11 p.m. Monday evening, 11 p.m. He sent me the first chapter of his dissertation. It took him six months to write. 6 a.m., he writes me a note. Have you read it yet? 7 a.m., I am very worried that you've not received my email. 8 a.m., I got a phone call with a voice message. And it's extraordinary, and I had to phone him, and so finally I just got fed up, so I phoned him back, and I said, how long did it take you to write? He said, six months. I said, phone me in six months. Of course, that's not happened. I actually graded it on the way here. So um, I, I finished it, and he, he got all of his feedback in four days, so he should be relaxed and be okay with it. And I understand that he's nervous. But folks, sometimes we forget how much we have to be thankful for. We're alive. We live in this extraordinary world. We've been created in beautiful and glorious ways. And we have a God that is all wisdom and love and compassion and kindness. And He has forgiven us of all of our sins. And we have deserved death and now we have life eternal. And church, get this, and we're going to live forever in His presence. Liberated from all sin. You know, that it's right, I'm obsessed with the early fathers. And in a moment, I'll tell you why. One of the church fathers, Evagrius Ponticus, extraordinary man, holy man, said this, the greatest insult to God is boredom. The greatest insult to God is boredom. And he said this, if you say you are bored, he said, what do you have to be bored about? You have a life of sin to repent about. You have scriptures to memorize and a world to evangelize and a God to worship. What can you be bored about? And I love what the psalmist says. I will offer to you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Church, there's always an opportunity to complain. Yet the scripture says, in all things, give thanks. So my son drags me to the gym and I'm there every second day. Pray for me. He worked out a beautiful chart that I'm supposed to lose 25 pounds by December. So pray for me. I hate every second of it. And the one morning he couldn't go, but I'm faithful. I go, I'm at the gym 5 a.m. in the morning and I just got a brand new car and I parked it far away so nobody can scratch it. You know when you get that new car, 
Nobody's allowed to come close to it. And I parked it and I came out and somebody crashed into my car and drove off without leaving any note. I phoned my pastor at 6 a.m. and I said, Pastor, you better pray for me now because I'm going to commit a lot of sin. Pray for me right now. That's what he says. He says, last week you preached on Thanksgiving. Give a sacrifice of Thanksgiving, my brother. Thank the Lord for this opportunity to forgive somebody. Okay, Pastor, I'll speak to you tomorrow. (laughs) Don't want to hear anything anymore. When you make a decision to give thanks in everything, Every opportunity is an opportunity to get to know God. Every opportunity is an opportunity to grow. Everything that happens to you become part of the curriculum of becoming Christ-like. And the last vow. And the psalmist ends by saying, and again, I will pay my vows to the Lord, but note you where? In the presence of his people. So the first vow is to make a vow to God, I'm going to finish well. The second vow is that to remain a servant. The third vow is to offer thanks to God in every opportunity. But the last vow is to remain amongst these people. Church, may I say this to you? God's plan has always been His church. I teach at a seminary, this is what I say to our faculty God's first plan was not the seminary. God's first plan was not the academy. It's always the church. His last plan is the church. We are here to serve the church. I got myself into so much trouble. I say this to a group of theologians. I say to do theology outside of the church is as sinful as having sex outside of marriage. Uh, Yeah, it didn't go down well. I didn't win any popularity contest that week. But it's true. The the scripture says that the church is the fullness of Christ that fills all in all. Where do we pay our vows? Not alone. We pay it in the midst of his people. I've made a commitment. I'm never not in church. I never miss a Sunday. And in the city that we serve in, the church that I serve in has got 12 services over the weekend. So there's enough opportunity. And I've made the commitment, even when I preach in another church, there's always a service to attend. So once I've preached, I get in my car and I drive to church and I go to church. When I met with my pastor, when we just joined, this is what he said to me, it was so rude. He said, he said, I think you're going to be difficult to pastor. I said, Pastor, what do you mean I'm going to be difficult to pastor? I'm going to be your best congregation member. But he asked me this question. He said, if you sit in church and somebody uses a Greek word incorrectly, can you be quiet about it? I said, Pastor, you're right. I'm going to be very difficult to pastor. <laughs> I had to make the choice. I don't come as a teacher to church. When I come to church, I'm not the dean of a seminary. When I come to church, I'm not a professor in New Testament. When I come to church, I'm not a scholar of rhetorical, critical analysis of Greek text. No, when I come to church, I am a servant and a worshiper ready to receive. 
When I speak at a conference, folks, I make sure I attend all the sessions as much as I can to receive myself. God is about to break this country open with revival. But he's looking for people that are simple of heart. That are not distracted by the fluff and the bubble. Not distracted by their own foolish desires. That are not distracted by selfish ambition. And how do we do this? We look at God and we say, God, when you say something, you keep that promise. And this is how I'm going to respond. So church, this morning as I conclude, I'm going to encourage you. Make a decision to end well. I had a family member recently that walked away from God. An acquaintance. And I decided to step in. And I phoned this person almost every week. And this is what I would say. I would phone this person and said, you are called to be holy. You shall be holy. You will serve God. This person would put down the phone in my ear. But of course, I know another number. And I phone again. It energizes me. Let us make this decision. The time of backsliding is over, church. The time of Christians walking away is over. We are not playing church anymore. When we come down and we baptize people, folks, our vows must count. I understand why some people get rebaptized. I don't do that. If I baptize you once, that's it. Not a second time. Because you made a vow to God. My wife and I will be will be married for 25 years next year and my wife is super duper romantic she watches all these Hallmark movies God help us and she says oh we're going to have a beautiful ceremony again and we're going to renew our vows and I said no way she got so offended and she said to me she says you hurt my heart why didn't you want to renew your vows I says, because I've not broken them my dear those vows I made 25 years ago they still intact And I will keep them till the day that I die. We've made a decision. The only way out is death. Either she kills me or I kill her. And since I'm not a violent person, I've said to her, a gentle death. No hacking, no shooting, no stabbing. I said, poison if it's got to be. A gentle death, my dear. We have to get to the place. What do we vow before God? I'm going to finish strong. I will remain your servant. I will give thanks. South Africa, can I just say to you, you have so much to be thankful for. You live in one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. You live amongst one of the most beautiful people. The diversity of this country, the beauty of this country. Just watching your worship and your exuberance. I almost want to scream at you and say, wake up. Thank God for what you've got. Travel a little bit, crack a book and see what's happening in the rest of the world. You are blessed beyond belief. Say thank you to God. And lastly, be committed to His church. Love His church. 
I hear people say all the time, oh, God's done with this church. God's done with that church. And I'm going to say, are you mad? God is never done with a church. Last story that I'll tell. Six years ago, I had an opportunity to preach in the oldest church that I've ever preached. And I've preached in old churches. I preach regularly in a church in Virginia Beach, a Baptist church called London Bridge Baptist Church. And London Bridge Baptist Church was established in 1674. They're still on the same grounds. There are four churches that they've built because they've grown. They still have the original church. But six years ago, I was given an opportunity to minister in a church in Rome. It's about six blocks from the Colosseum. It's a church in honor of the church father, Clement of Rome. It's called San Clemente. The church was established in 67 after Christ. Right now, every Sunday that you go, that church is packed because they've experienced a revival. And to stand on that ground, the foundation goes back to 67. The ground you stand on when you preach. For almost 2,000 years, people have worshipped there. And I remember I stood there and I felt the Holy Spirit come over me and God just said to me, I will never leave you and never forsake you. For 2,000 years, I have been faithful. I'm passionate about the support of the nation of Israel. I belong to the leadership of a group called Kufi, Christians United for Israel. About 9 million members now. And about three months ago, I spoke at their national conference in Washington, D.C. And for the first time ever, I had protesters. So people snuck in, and as I started to speak, they started to protest. And I was kicked and punched and spit at. First time in my life. What a privilege. And I had an angry man with several demons in him come and speak to me. And he looked at me and he was screaming at me. And he says, why would you support? That's what I said. Because once God makes a promise, he will never break it. I support Israel, not because of the nation of Israel. I support Israel because it's about the faithfulness of God. Every promise he has made, he will keep. Church, what shall we render to the Lord for all of his faithfulness? You pay your vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. Finish well, remain his servant, give thanks to him every day and stay in love with his church. God bless you. Thank you for the privilege, Pastor.